Welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome into World Soccer Talk. Soccer Morning happening right now in your eardrums. We're ready to go. It is transfer deadline day. Well, depending on where you are. Either it's come and gone or it's still yet to happen. Transfer deadline day in a couple of places. A couple of places had their deadlines yesterday and that leads us into some of the headlines but first let me tell you that our good friend Eric Gomez covers Mexican soccer will join us in the next segment we'll go over some of the moves for Mexican players lots of movement uh, especially for some highly touted Mexican players one of the biggest names in Mexico moving to a new league and we'll touch on the state of the Mexican national team as well as the Apertura in Liga MX. So that should be a good discussion with our friend Eric Gomez. Very much looking forward to that. Let's start with a transfer that did not happen or has not happened yet. David De Gea, the goalkeeper for Manchester United, desperate to get a move to Real Madrid. Everybody seemed ready to make this thing happen. They had plenty of time to get the deal done, and yet they waited until the last minute. Now the transfer has fallen through. Not because a party has backed out, but because the paperwork did not arrive at the LFP offices in Spain on time with the Spanish transfer window closing on August 31st at midnight. Manchester United and Real Madrid both pointing fingers at each other at this point. Real Madrid has now issued a statement outlining what they did to make this happen. Quote, Manchester United did not open negotiation for the federal rights of David De Gea until yesterday morning. Real Madrid, despite the difficulties of an operation of this kind in the last day of registration, agreed to begin these talks. It goes point by point, and there are 10 of them. In short, it concludes, Real Madrid has done everything necessary and at all times to implement these two transfers. This also includes the move of Kaylor Navas from Real Madrid to Manchester United as part of a swap. The deal itself was said to be worth about £29 million. And now there are questions over whether or not this will be appealed, particularly to FIFA, and uh, whether it can still happen. De Gea is said to have been crushed by the news that this did not go through. Lots of jokes flying around on Twitter yesterday about the format of the file. At one point, Real Madrid said that they could not open Manchester United's documentation. This has taken on a farcical level at this point. Uh, And look, sums up the transfer window in a lot of ways. We will see if this will still happen. One transfer that did happen from Manchester United, Chicharito Hernandez, who has been Manchester United property despite his loan stint at Real Madrid last year, has moved to Bayer Leverkusen. He signed a three-year deal. The transfer itself worth £7.3 million, reportedly. Uh, Hernandez scored seven goals in 23 La Liga appearances for Real Madrid, 59 goals in 156 total appearances for Manchester United. Additionally, and we will cover this with our friend Eric Gomez, as mentioned, a couple of other Mexican internationals on the move. Jesus Tecatito Corona goes from FC20 to Porto in Portugal, and Miguel Layun joins him there at Porto on loan from Watford of the English Premier League. In Germany, one of the bigger uh, transfers of the day, Julian Draxler moving from Schalke to Wolfsburg for about 30 million euros. The 21-year-old German international will be asked to fill the void left by Kevin De Bruyne, who moved on to Manchester City. Wolfsburg also strengthened their defense by adding Bayern Munich defender Dante in this particular transfer window. 
In the biggest news around American soccer at the moment, the Financial Times of London is reporting that the NASL is crying foul over revised standards that U.S. soccer is putting in place for Division I status in this country. These include raising the level of teams, the number of teams from 12 to 16, requiring that 75% of the teams be based in metropolitan areas with populations of 2 million people or more, and asking for all stadiums to uh, have a capacity of 15,000 or more. This is going to be an ongoing thing here. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. We are looking to cover this in depth here on Soccer Morning. We're working to find some experts on the topic. This obviously has a lot to do with uh, with antitrust law uh, within the world of sports. The gentleman involved on the NASL side is a very famous antitrust attorney, Jeffrey Kessler. He represents the NASL. He wrote in a letter to Sunil Galati. The financial damage is significant. Simply put, the actions by U.S. soccer are hindering the league's earning potentials, earnings potential with advertisers, broadcasters, and other business partner, partners who will pay top dollar only for Division One, regardless of the quality of play or passion of the fans. So we have the first salvo in what could be a protracted war between MLS with their uh, Division One status and uh, long-standing place within the U.S. soccer hierarchy. Uh, also, the the single entity system may not uh, be in play directly here, but certainly will be attacked. Uh, and NASL, who is operating on a very different level, uh, now trying to add teams. Puerto Rico and Miami coming in next year. They have eleven teams now. Uh, they're obviously looking uh, that they might lose Man- Minnesota United FC as well as Atlanta Silverbacks, whose future is in doubt. U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch and her Swiss counterpart Michael Lauber are set to give a update on their FIFA criminal probe on September 14th in Zurich. This will be part of an international conference of prosecutors that's happening there. In a bit of irony, the event will be held in the same hotel uh, that housed CONCACAF and Bowl officials during the FIFA uh, meeting that led uh, that that was happening during the raid led by Swiss officials at the behest of the U.S. Department of Justice. All right, so we also, again, mentioned that the transfer window has closed in many a country. It is still open in several places, including, most notably, England, also Scotland, also Turkey. There's a possibility that Giassi Zardes could be uh, on the move, although uh, we haven't heard a lot out of the MLS camps, but... Greg Seltzer of No Short Corners, who has his ear to the ground in Europe better than anybody else when it comes to American players and transfers, reports that there is an offer on the table from Reading for Zardis that the, uh, that, that the LA Galaxy will have to consider. Is Zardis a player that the Galaxy can part with at this point with another championship in their sights? There's a, a lot of talent in that team, but uh, taking Zardis out could be too much of a blow this year. He may have to wait until the winter or next summer before he gets his move. All right, let's set the stage. Eric Gomez joining us in mere moments. We'll talk about Tecatito Corona. We'll talk about Miguel Ayun. We'll talk about Chicharito Hernandez, the state of the Mexican national team under Tuca Ferretti, and more. Don't go anywhere. We'll set that up. We'll get Eric on the line, and uh, we'll talk to him later on in the show. Plenty of time for phone calls. Get your questions ready. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Facing the crowd You're talking too loud But I can't hear you calling 
This Friday, the U.S. men's national team returns to action when it takes on Peru at RFK Stadium in an exhibition game. For a different experience, I'd like to invite you to mute the TV and listen to Matt Lichtenstager on Rabble.tv as he shares his thoughts and analysis live during the international friendly. With Rabble, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the broadcast on TV, press the mute button, and then head on over to Rabble.tv to listen to the broadcast on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. You can join in, too, by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. And if you have an iPhone, install the Rabble TV app and add a comment to the broadcast message board, then listen live via the app. Or why don't you create your own broadcast called one of your team's games? It's easy. Sign up for free today and try it out. Join Matt this Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern for USA against Peru on Rabble.tv, where it's your team and your call. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, we turn now to our good friend Eric Gomez. Eric, you might have the record for Soccer Morning appearances. I don't know. It's probably close with a couple other people, but I'm, I'm guessing you've been on this show more right. than anybody else, and it's great to have you every time. I mean, I'm part of a rotating cast. I'm aware of that. I had no idea I was... Uh, among the top three, though, so I, I feel flattered. So. Yeah, I think also so. that intro music that that got me pumped. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. good intro music. Wait, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, let's let's be pumped about the the movement of Mexican players during this particular transfer window. Got a couple of 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 guys who are, have moved around. I mean, let's start. I can't bury the lead. It is Chicharito Hernandez getting out of um, a difficult situation at Manchester United. Obviously on loan at Real Madrid last year, which was a, a move you have to take, but it didn't ultimately work out for him in terms of playing time. He moves to Bayer Leverkusen, something in the neighborhood of uh, seven point five million pounds is the report. Uh, in the end, first, I mean, the first thing that we need to ask is whether or not this is a good move for Javier Hernandez. I think any move away from Manchester United, really, the Manchester Uniteds and the Real Madrids of the world, was a good omen for Chicharito, considering. He was never going to get playing time at those teams, and I understand that that might anger a few people. It, it can get frustrating when you see that Chicharito is a, a very good goal poacher, that he's a very good player, a very good teammate, but he's definitely not the guy who's going to be carrying the load for a team like Real Madrid or Manchester United, offensively speaking, for 38 games, uh, 36 games um, in, a, um, in a European season, in a league season, so... At best, he was going to be a fringe player at either one of those teams, and I think that going to a team like Bayer Leverkusen, which is still in that Champions League mold, it's still a team that can contend for a title, maybe not this year with this Bayern Munich um, and really becoming a one-team league in the, in the Bundesliga, now with Borussia Dortmund uh, kind of changing, changing of the guard. But... I still feel like this is not a slam dunk for Chicharito. I still think that he's going to have some pretty decent competition in that roster, and it's going to be not as difficult as it was for him at Real Madrid or Manchester United, but it's still not going to be a situation where he just kind of walks in there and it's like, well, you know, I'm I'm in the starting 11. Who else is in there? Um, there are some very good strikers on that team, and I think that um, he's going to have to fight for that playing time. But it's going, it's in the long run, it's going to be a, a better situation than it was before. 
Yeah, and that's uh, you know this as moves down the ladder go. Uh, this isn't you could do a lot worse than this. And uh, he was in an elite category being at Manchester United and then at Real Madrid for a season. So this is this is still elite, but maybe you know instead of the one percent, this is the the three percent. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. Right, and you could think of it this way: there were only a handful of clubs in the entire world that Chicharito could go to after Real Madrid, and and you could still say, well, they, you know, this is a a comparable move. Um, he definitely moved to the second tier of clubs uh, in Europe and in the world, but it's still a very good situation for him. I think that he could still turn some heads. I mean, he's 27 years old. I, I feel. Like we've been talking about him, um, at least in Mexico for the last decade, but it's only really been five years since he moved to Manchester. And, uh, you realize that he's still, you know, in the prime of his career, he's still going to get opportunities to score a bunch of goals in, in one of the premier leagues in the entire world. So, um, it's, it's an exciting move for him. I understand that, uh, he was very excited about the possibility to go to Germany. And again, you know, you, you want to look at it this way. Maybe you're not going to play for Bayern Munich. Maybe you're not going to play for a Chelsea or a Manchester City or a Barcelona, but you're still playing in one of the three best leagues in the world, arguably. Um, and it's, it's a very good situation for him to kind of show what he's made of, to say, I'm coming off a very difficult, you know, a very difficult psychological moment um, given that Real Madrid didn't turn out the way that he wanted it to and he missed out on the Gold Cup and there was that whole hubbub over over his uh, misses in the Champions League playoff and now he's going to get a, a fresh start which is something that you would you would really want in, in that type of situation but uh, yeah I mean I'm not going to go crazy either and say well you know this is this is Chicharito 2.0, and we're going to see him uh, bag 20, 25 goals in the Bundesliga this season. I don't think that's the case, but I think he's going to make that call back to being a relevant player in the world landscape. Yeah, just a quick look at uh, the current state of things at Bayer Leverkusen. Just only three out-and-out forwards listed on their roster that I have in front of me. Uh, Hernandez, Stefan Kiesling, and Admir Mamedi. So we'll see how things go for Chicharito Hernandez. Now, this is obviously... <clears throat> Uh, you know, a benefit if he gets playing time, a benefit to the Mexican national team. Clearly, he'll want to hit the ground running. We'll see how quickly he can uh, get into this team. I mean, the Bundesliga season is underway. We know that the European transfer window goes all the way up until uh, the second, third week of the season. It, it, do you think he'll have any difficulty um, getting fit enough for the Bundesliga uh, on a quick enough timeline to start playing soon? No, and we're actually talking about him staying um, for these uh, next two weeks in Germany instead of coming to Mexico or coming to the United States rather and playing with the Mexican national team uh, against Trinidad and Tobago and Argentina. So he's going to get an opportunity to kind of get to know some of his new teammates, get to know his, his manager, play maybe in a friendly uh, that's coming up next week and really try to uh, make himself as comfortable as he possibly can with that new setup, with that new strategy. I think this is a very advantageous situation for him given that this is a team that really likes to attack. And, uh, you know, we mentioned that he might not ha uh, be headed into a slam dunk type situation where he's going to get 30 starts this season. But, um, you know, there's really only one guy that is penciled into that lineup offensively, and that is Stefan Kiesling. Um, he does have, 
they do have three out and out strikers, but there are also about three or four guys who have been able to step into that role despite them being wingers or despite them being attacking midfielders. And they've done so in a, in a very um, positive and productive way for, for Bayer Leverkusen. So I do think that, um, his getting ahead of things by staying in Germany, if that report is true, will be uh, just the best thing for him going forward because he'll be able to hit the ground running once he gets that call up. And we've seen a couple of other guys do that, um, a couple of Mexican teammates of his with their new clubs this season, Raul Jimenez being one of them over at Benfica, um, just getting to know their team, getting to know their environment and not being really distracted by I mean, yeah, it's Argentina, but it's still a couple of meaningless friendlies um, with an interim coach. Uh, it'll be a, uh, a much better thing for him in the long run that he stay. We'll come to the interim coach for Mexico here momentarily. <laughs> Let's talk about a couple other moves. Two players going to Porto, uh, Jesus Decatito Corona from FC Twente and Miguel Layun from Watford on loan. Uh, you know, uh, Portugal a place and certainly Porto a place where they – uh, they they turn players into hot commodities. Is that is that Tecatito's path at this point? Well, I mean, they certainly think so. They slapped a fifty million release clause on him, fifty million euro release clause on him. So that means that they they rate him pretty highly. And I would expect a guy like Tecatito Corona, who's twenty two years old, uh, to be able to continue his his massive growth and and just try to uh, really continue his path in, in European football the way that he's been doing so the way that he's been just going through it so far which is with a lot of confidence and um, with teams really adapting to his style I mean he's just a very desirable player nowadays he's very fast he's great on the ball he's able to cut inside if he's playing on the wing and score some goals we saw that with Mexico in the Gold Cup uh, he's great off the bench and he's great starting uh, he's a guy who's just you know his motor is always running and I know that that's just a a stupid cliche that uh, I, I picked up by watching a lot of NFL preseason games, but you know he's just a guy who's, who's running his his butt off for the for the ninety minutes, and uh, that's just a very desirable thing to have nowadays from a player um, of his of his position and of his stature within within his national team. Again, you know, twenty two years old, and and a lot of people are touting him as this, as this future or the present even of the Mexican national team. And once you take a look at the the performances that he's been able to to have, you know certainly not consistently yet, but the flashes of talent that he's able to bring, you you tend to believe that that's the case. With Layun, you know Layun is alone coming from a Premier League team, so it's not like <clears throat> he won the lottery here, but he is going to get to play Champions League football. And at 27, he's a guy who um, is in his second period in Europe. He played for Atalanta in, in, in Serie A a couple of years ago. That didn't go as well as he would want it to, but uh, he, he's been great for Club America. He's been great for the Mexican national team. And now in this in this um, encore in European football, he's, he's getting to play for some pretty good uh, in some pretty good situations. So I think what's interesting here is that the uh, Porto manager, Julian Lopetegui, he was in Cancun a couple of months ago for that Mexican league draft, which is, of course, a misnomer. Uh, but he was there, and he was talking about a lot of players, and he was gathering intel on, on some guys. But we really didn't expect this. I mean, Porto will go into this season <clears throat> with, I believe, five Mexican players. Uh, they've got Hector Herrera. They've got Raul Gudinho, who's Iker Casillas' backup. Uh, they've got uh, this young guy, Omar Govea, who they signed from America. And now they've got Tecatito Corona and Layun. So it's just amazing to see any team really in Europe with five Mexican players. Going oh, going full in. By the way, I think 
uh, you know, for for as you said, not like Leon won the lottery, but I think I think he might like living in Porto a little bit better than living in Watford. <laughs> that's just that's just a guess, and uh, you know, we'll see how that how that goes and how that you know how that uh, uh, agrees with him or or not. Um, the, the these are the three names that I had off the top here, uh, Eric. Is there any other Mexican player moving or having? I mean, you mentioned Raúl Jiménez. Obviously, we knew that already. That had already happened. But uh, and he's playing with Benfica. W- what is the state, generally speaking, of of Mexican players abroad at the moment? Well, there's going to be a record of Mexican players playing in the Champions League group stage, which is something that really resonates in Mexico because it's it's a, certainly a recent phenomenon that we see. Mexican players in this competition. Um, I think that's that's pretty much it for dead, for transfer deadline days. Of course, with the Premier League still going on, we might see one surprise or two, but I don't think so. <clears throat> and I also just want to point out that one guy that pretty much everybody expected to move, who is Memo Ochoa, mm-hmm. didn't get to do so. Malaga kind of trying to re-up him, which is... <laughs> Bizarre. <laughs> you might look at it as, as a sign of good faith, but it's... Yeah. But, it also could be kind of a cruel joke, you know, considering that he didn't get to play last season. It doesn't look like he's going to get to play this season. They're touting him as the goalkeeper of the future, but this guy's 30 years old, and he's the same age as the guy that they've got starting right now, which right. is Carlos Kameni. And it's just, a, just again, a, a strange situation for him all around. Do we, do we have currently any Mexicans in England now that Layun has left? I believe he was the last one. Okay. Just in general, um, you know, we, we obviously know the, the saga of Carlos Vela and Giovanni Dos Santos. Is, is there something that doesn't work for Mexican players in England in general? Um, or, you know, and, and really, if a Mexican player has the opportunity to make that Premier League move, is that something that they should consider? Or, uh, you know, are there better options that, that maybe fit their, uh, the, certainly their, their football culture better than, than the Premier League? I mean, I think any single time you have the opportunity to go go play for, again, arguably the best league in the world. You have to take it. You have to trust yourself that you'll be able to take that opportunity on. And I know that in the past, um, the criticisms that are now levied against Mexican players going to a place like England were levied against Brazilians and they were levied against Argentinians saying that, well, you know, these are very happy, shiny people from, <laughs> from very... Um, sunny backgrounds right. and, you know, places with great weather yeah. and they're just not able to dance to the cold. And, and, you know, then the second criticism was, well, their bodies aren't really uh, built <clears throat> for the premier league and they're just not able to uh, withstand the rigors of, of, of English football. You know, I think that's, that's just not, those are just excuses really. I mean, I think that Chicharito had a pretty good run in the premier league. And of course he was in a situation at first, that allowed him to develop and, and find his, his comfort zone. And you could definitely argue that Carlos Vela was never happy at Arsenal. I think that was more or less just his particular personality and, 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 and the way that he conducts himself uh, was just not in line with, with something that Arsene Wenger uh, would want. Um, but other guys, you know, Giovanni Dos Santos, he was just, it was just too, too soon for him, yeah. um, that move. And uh, he just was never able to take advantage of, of the opportunity uh, to play in the Premier League. Other guys, you know, again, Layun, this this being a, a premier example or a good example of it, he helped Watford uh, make it into the Premier League this season, and he was a, a key player for them. Um, he started this year or, you know, this month, August, uh, under Kike Sanchez-Flores. He scored a goal, and uh, he was there for the League Cup as well. So it's not like they had completely um, shuttled him off, off the first team. I mean, I think that... 
This was just a situation that presented itself with Porto saying, hey, we want you, and Layun just kind of turning, turning back to his, um, to his team, Watford, and saying, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to play Champions League football. I'll see you next season. And he took it, which is not a bad thing to do. But I think Mexican players just need to keep at it. You know, I think we need to keep exporting players into that league because as soon as, as you break the mold and you break that psychological hold that says maybe you're better off in Spain where they speak your language or maybe you're better off in Italy where the weather is fantastic, um, then, you know, it'll keep happening and it'll, it'll keep being this kind of psychological yeah. block. Yeah. Uh, any any <clears throat> proposed moves, anybody in the rumor mill who didn't ultimately make a, make a jump to Europe that uh, a little bit of disappointment maybe in Mexican circles <clears throat> for, for the development of, of some young players? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are a couple of guys who I think most of us expected to go to Europe, even if they weren't um, fixtures on the Mexican national team. Right now, two of those guys are on the Mexican U-22 team that's, um, you know, training for that pre-Olympic CONCACAF tournament. Uh, Eric Gutierrez and uh, Irving Lozano from Pachuca are two of those guys. Um, you know, Gutierrez, I believe, is 21. Lozano, I believe, is either 19 or 20. Really talented players. Pachuca is, is, is developing a lot of fantastic Mexican talent right now, and I do believe that they'll continue to, to profit off of that, whether they, they sell to Chivas or America, or whether they sell to to European teams. I think the criticism that has been um, kind of uh, levied towards Pachuca is, is pretty simple. Uh, they kind of tout their players a little too highly when European teams come calling. Lozano was on, was on PSV and Roma's radar this summer, and Pachuca was just out and out demanding 10 million euros for that transfer, which is not unheard of uh, in Mexican circles, but it's definitely a, a top-tier transfer uh, from Liga MX to Europe. And Gutierrez was the same case. Uh, I believe Roma was after him. They wanted Lozano and Gutierrez in a package deal, and uh, they just didn't come up with with enough money to take him. So this is this is something that I I do believe will continue to happen because Pachuca they know what they have on their hands, and I think that they found out that they can likely coax teams like Tigres and Chivas and America to pay eight, nine, ten million euros, not dollars, eight, nine, ten million euros to take on these players. Because the threat is always there that, you know, European team might come in here and snatch one of those players and you'll never see him again. Might as well be you who overpays for this player and takes him on. Uh, the other guy who I really expected to move on was Jurgen Dahm. But, of course, Jurgen Dahm was tied up um, back in June with that transfer to Tigres. I expected him to just go in there and maybe try and win that Copa Libertadores against River Plate. It didn't happen, and then maybe he would be able to to make the jump uh, to Europe, even if it was on loan, given that you know we were coming into a new season. That didn't happen as well, and it's easy to understand why. They made a big investment on him, and they want to keep him around again. He's only 22 years old, but you know there's definitely a a very small group, but but very talented group of players in Mexico who would be able to make a jump early on. And I, I do believe that we'll see a couple of transfers come wintertime. All right. Let's, uh, let's move to the national team. I mean, you, you hinted at some of the, uh, the things coming up for, for Mexico. Uh, we've got an interim coach here. Tuca Ferretti steps into the breach. He's a guy that um, has been around Mexican soccer for a very long time. He's got a four game mandate. What is he going to bring to the table? And we'll, we'll do that before we get to his selections and, and some of the more surprising omissions. 
Right, a very, very long-serving coach in the Mexican game. This is the first time in 25 years, 24 years, that he will not be coaching in the league. He had been coaching in the league continuously for 24 years, albeit with, with different teams. But he had never missed a game. He's never been fired. So that just gives you an idea of how consistent he's been and, and how highly he is rated as a manager in Mexico. Um, what he's able to bring to the table mainly is order. Um, he is a guy who has been, I, you know, it's not a criticism, but he's been labeled as a defensive coach. And he's always favored that 4 4 or that, even that 4 5 formation. And he's always going to be building out of the back. Uh, this is a guy who has, um, he won't admit that. He'll say that he's a balanced coach and that he works with what he has. And he definitely has some very interesting offensive players on his squad, but I still expect a guy like Duca Ferretti to come in and fix all this 5-3-2-3-5-2 nonsense that was going on with Miguel Herrera and say, we're going to build from the back. We're going to have a lot of possession, as Mexican teams usually do. And we're going to try and um, <clears throat> just outwit the opponent and not not show too much of our hand. We're not going to risk too much as we go out there. These first two friendlies, I mean, again, the difference in level is massive. <laughs> you're going to play against Trinidad and Tobago in Salt Lake City, and then you're going to play against Argentina four days later in Arlington. So it's a pretty huge jump, but I still expect to get to take both of those games on similarly and saying, well, uh, we need to have the ball, and we need to uh, just push people off the ball. So he's a very physical coach as well. And we need to try and, and figure out what this team's weak spot is in order to uh, to exploit that. Now, he doesn't have a lot of time. And Tuca is not usually a coach who hits the ground running. He needs to have long tenures and, and, and pretty good uh, pretty good knowledge of what his squad has and, and how he's going to be able to exploit said squad. So this is a pretty dangerous situation for him. I mean, it's not going to tarnish his legacy or anything, but it's a dangerous situation for him to just kind of go in there and for everybody to expect that, uh, that Mexico is going to be fine against the United States and against Argentina for these next uh, four games. I think that, you know, of course, everybody in Mexico hopes that if there is a rude awakening, that rude awakening come against Trinidad or Argentina and not against the United States. Mm -hmm. But, you know, being a CONCACAF manager, being a guy who has been in Mexican football for as long as he has, and of course, this is a guy who came to Mexico originally as a player in 1978, he knows the United States up and down. So it's not going to be a case to which he's just not aware of who he's facing. I think this is going to be a case of whether he's able to turn the squad that he has into a dominant team in such a short amount of time. So let's talk about the the roster he's called up uh, for these friendlies. Uh, Trinidad and Tobago uh, on the 4th, and then uh, next week Argentina in, in Dallas, as you said, in Arlington. Uh, the, the, what's been focused on mostly is the absence of a couple of names. Both Dos Santos brothers, Giovanni and Jonathan, and Memo Ochoa, uh, the goalkeeper, uh, why, essentially, did he leave off, especially, you know, a player like Jonathan DeSantos, who I thought had a, an excellent gold cup? Right. And I think it's not the why, but more the how that's been really bugging people. Um, supposedly, this is just a, a technical decision. This is just something that Duca um, decided on because he just randomly thought that both Dos Santos players and Guillermo Ochoa were not fit for his squad. But this is, of course, I mean, this this isn't the case. This is typical Mexican politicking, Mex you know, typical hush-hush uh, type discipline where we don't want to get the media involved because it's going to be such a huge scandal. 
but nonetheless, it you know it's it's the case, and um, it's it's just a very unfortunate situation because we all know what's happening. I mean, Giovanni dos Santos and Jonathan dos Santos tweeted out pro Herrera messages just hours after he had confirmed that he had punched um, a journal a Mexican journalist in in the neck. <clears throat> he of course was fired for that, and I think that both of those guys really left a kind of a sour taste in the FMF. Um, in the FMF's mouth and, and, and in, in most of the um, the fans that, that were kind of witnessing this, the entire situation. So I think it was pretty obvious that both of those guys were going to be uh, disciplined. I do believe that even though Memo Ochoa was not directly involved in, in, in tweeting out messages or, or, or making his support be known via um, social social messaging, he was still involved in the incident itself. And he was called out by a couple of guys who were at the airport for, for being just generally annoying in that situation. Also, you know, Choa is pretty much the only one of these guys now who isn't playing and who isn't getting regular minutes. And he's been in this situation uh, for the last 12 months, ever since he left the Hacho and, and signed for Malaga. So, it, you know, from a sporting standpoint, I think the only one that really makes sense is Ochoa. And it's kind of a stretch, but Dos Santos, Jonathan and Giovanni Dos Santos, both of those guys are, are, are being punished. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. They just don't want to come out publicly and say that they're punishing them. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's obviously the, uh, the, the, the most interesting element of this. Okay, so you know, do, do you expect them, I mean, are they going to pay their penance and then come back in when, when Mexico arrives in Pasadena on, uh, on October t- 10th, or is this something that's going to carry over to that game? Because I imagine that will be a distraction that maybe Mexico shouldn't, uh, shouldn't get themselves embroiled in. Well, I think Giovanni Dos Santos is making a pretty good campaign for himself, both on the pitch and off it. Um, you know, he's been lights out for the LA Galaxy, as we all know. And off the pitch, he's been giving interviews to Mexican outlets seemingly every week. Uh, I look up and he's on my TV screen. He's saying, uh, you know, that he wants to come back, that he, he want, he's very excited to play under Tuca Ferretti. Um, I think he, it's a solid PR move um, and surprising given that he's not had very solid PR moves <laughs> over the course of his career. Uh, maybe living in L.A. is, is helping with that. But um, I, I do understand that <clears throat> as a temporary measure, these guys are going to be out for. It's, it's kind of a sit in the corner and think about what you've done type situation. And it's more of it's more making making an example of a couple of guys because there were a lot of team, a lot of players on that team who publicly supported and privately supported Miguel Herrera. I mean, it was just a case of these, you know, these rich kids gone wild in which they condoned again, either publicly or privately about a violence, about a physical violence against a journalist. And you can make the case that this journalist was, uh, you know, being really hard on Miguel Herrera, but to make that leap to say, well, he, you know, he was being hard on our coach to say he deserved a physical assault is a very dangerous thing to do and a very dangerous thing to say. So I think the Giovanni Dos Santos and the Jonathan Dos Santos situation is more or less trying to tell the players, you need to cut down on this type of behavior. Otherwise, we're going to continue making examples out of you. And now that there are there's a breadth of, of, of players who are um, making the leap. And I think we saw that with, with the guys that were called up 
in place of Oribe Peralta. And um, I think it was Luis Montes, Israel Jimenez, and Henry Martin from Tijuana. There are a lot of guys who can take up that mantle now, and nobody is untouchable in that Mexican team. So if they want to keep playing for the Mexican national team, they're going to have to adjust their attitude. All right, very quickly before I have to run, uh, Eric, let's let's take a look at, at the Apertura as it sits at the moment. I'm, I'm looking at the current standings. We've got most teams on seven games, uh, and it looks like, I mean, I, what strikes me is a couple of big teams at the bottom of the table right now, Cruz Azul, Santos, Laguna, Leon on top. Uh, what are the storylines so far? You know, a good, uh, you know, almost, uh, you know, almost, uh, I guess, a third of the way through the Apertura at this point, more than that. Yeah, I think we're getting close to the uh, to the midpoint here with with the eighth and the ninth weeks coming up shortly. You know, Santos Laguna has had such a whirlwind ride over the last six months. They won the league. They won the um, the new, you know, the Mexican version of the Community Shield or the Supercopa, if you want to call it that. And um, they started the season with four straight losses. So their champion, <laughs> their champion winning manager, Pedro Caixinha, just up and quit. And uh, part of that was motivated by the bad start, but a big part of that was him not wanting to damage his brand a little further, um, given that he is Portuguese, given that he is uh, really good friends with Jose, Jose Mourinho. He wants to come back to Europe, and he wants to manage in, in, in Europe. So I think he felt that the time was right. He had already won a Mexican Cup. He had already won a Mexican League. Uh, he'd pretty much done what he needed to do at that team to really kind of stake his claim as a Europe-bound manager, and he decided to just walk away. Uh, Cruz Azul, I mean, Cruz Azul, on the other hand, they were touted to be one of the uh, the favorites of this tournament. They signed a whole bunch of players, and uh, their manager was thought of as kind of a low-key guy who was ready to make the leap to a big team. That has not been the case at all. They've got five losses in seven games. And it looks like, uh, you know, they've not been able to get a, um, a substitute for him for Sergio Bueno, the manager. But I do think that, uh, if he loses that next game coming back from the FIFA break, that he'll be, he'll be out on, on the unemployment line. Uh, and, and very quickly before we run, any disappointment so far for, for Tigres? We know, I know they spent uh, quite a bit of money, um, making a big splash. They obviously, uh, went for, uh, they went for, um, Kovalevich Doris glory and, and came up short. Where, where did things sit with Tigres at the moment? No, they they pretty much gave up um, the first two three games of the season, given that they were completely focused on Copa Libertadores. So they played those those games with the second team, and not surprisingly, they got beat. Um, so it was it was in the budget. I don't think anybody's going to be upset about their record so far. Mexico is such a I mean such a team friendly tournament that I think that if they turn it up in the second half, which they should, even with Duque Ferretti splitting his time between Tigres and the Mexican national team, they'll be able to make the playoffs. Um, with a roster like that and with the players clicking the way that they have been, uh, Andre Guignac being the main component of that offense, uh, they'll be there. They'll be there towards the end. And I think Mexico is, again, one of those countries where it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Yeah. And if they're able to get their their um, their level up for those last three, four, five games of the regular season. They will definitely be a team to watch in the playoffs. There you go. Eric Gomez, Eric Gomez86 on Twitter. You have got to be following my man, Eric. Thanks for the time as always. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking to you leading up to Pasadena. <laughs> Great to be on. Thanks a lot, Jason. There it goes, Eric. It's good stuff from him. Let's open up the phone lines and we'll talk to you. Call me up and let's talk about NASL being pissed off and transfer window deadline day. And soccer. Let's talk about soccer. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com.
This Friday, the U.S. men's national team returns to action when it takes on Peru at RFK Stadium in an exhibition game. For a different experience, I'd like to invite you to mute the TV and listen to Matt Lichtenstager on Rabble.tv as he shares his thoughts and analysis live during the international friendly. With Rabble, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the broadcast on TV, press the mute button, and then head on over to Rabble.tv to listen to the broadcast on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. You can join in, too, by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. And if you have an iPhone, install the Rabble TV app and add a comment to the broadcast message board, then listen live via the app. Or why don't you create your own broadcast called one of your team's games? It's easy. Sign up for free today and try it out. Join Matt this Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern for USA against Peru on Rabble.tv, where it's your team and your call. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. We are back on Tuesday talking soccer in America and around the world right here on Soccer Morning, worldsoccertalk.com. Make sure you check out backheel.com, by the way. Lots of cool stuff happening over there, including the store with t-shirts like the one I'm wearing right now, Baller, because he's Blazer. And we got the mugs that say Soccer Morning on them with our lovely yellow logo. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Just getting word... Virgil van Dyke has joined Southampton from Celtic for 11.5 million pounds. So that's a, a deadline deal coming good for the Saints as uh, they strengthen their defense there. 24 years old, big kid, uh, big kid. All right, 646-832-3909 is your phone number. There are a lot of things on the table this morning, things that you can call me up, give me your opinion on, things you can talk about. The deadline uh, transfer deadline in England, Scotland, Turkey. That's pretty much it uh, as uh, as Europe goes. Interesting to consider whether or not the Galaxy would, would give up Giassi's artist and sell him to Reading for, I would imagine, what is a couple million dollars at this point. Uh, he's going to be 24 years old tomorrow, I believe, or the day after that. He's an, a talented young player, comes relatively cheap for a team like Reading in the English Championship, but that's a significant amount of money for the Galaxy they can put back into their academy system or towards the salaries of some other players. Uh, also interesting to consider uh, that there's not other Americans involved here. We don't have a whole lot of transfer rumors swirling around Americans. I mean, remember the heady days of Breckshay? Was, was that a winter move? I can't remember Breckshay was a winter move or a summer move. Breckshay getting interviewed in his car when he made that ill-fated move to Stoke City a couple years back because we didn't we just don't get enough Americans being interviewed in cars I remember Marisa Dew getting interviewed as well uh when he made the move down from Rangers uh into England so uh you know it's fun the transfer deadline day the stuff I mean it's relatively fun Robert in California when uh talking about the coverage here ESPN and NBC Sports are doing deadline day coverage nothing from Fox when Fox Soccer Channel was still a thing, they had eight hours of Sky Sports coverage on deadline day. Wish they kept that up. I don't know if there's anywhere you can see Sky Sports deadline day coverage in the United States on television. Uh, you probably could find a way to watch it if you really wanted to, and I've done that in the past, uh, believe it or not. I do enjoy 
some of the ridiculous elements that come with transfer deadline day, the helicopters, players being spotted. Who we, who did we have that like uh, desperately wanted to transfer and drove to the proposed club's training ground and like parked outside the gates? Who, <laughs> yeah, Odom Wingy, that's right. <laughs> that was that was like two or three years ago. That was a fun one. Uh, though I love those stories. I do. I love. Uh, 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 we've got that. The, the helicopter has been spotted above above Melbourne, uh, Mel, above Melwood, and uh, it looks like they're going to get this deal done. Uh, it's coming down to about fourteen million pounds, and blah. Jim White is in the. Yeah, that's right. Jim White is in the building. That's when things get real. That's when things get heavy, and we're looking at what about like five o'clock Eastern time? Is right? Is the window closed? Is it seven hours or six right now? I can't remember. Or five? Is it five? I don't know what the difference in time is. I don't do time very well. I show up and watch Premier League soccer when it's on my television. I don't know what time it is in England. 646-832-3909 is your phone number. Hit us up on Skype. Sorry, on Twitter as well. At, at Soccer Morning. We'll go ahead and uh, take your tweets and your comments on this stuff. The other thing here beyond the transfer window, uh, beyond those European elements, and even if you want to connect them to some American players, is this or this um, the news that the NASL is none too happy with U.S. soccer at this point in time, and we've got the potential for, I guess, with the potential for a lawsuit? I mean, if you retain an attorney who specializes in antitrust law, then I think you're sending a pretty clear statement. Again, this is a this is a, a, an issue re- revolving around U.S. soccer being the being the body that that um, gives the sanction to a Division I t- uh, league in this country. In a country without a pyramid, part of NASL's beef here is that they believe that as long as there's not an integrated pyramid, an integrated uh, ladder for first division, second gr- division, if we don't have movement t- between divisions, then there shouldn't be a restraint on their ability to compete with MLS for the first division status. Again, I'll just review here. Uh, the proposed changes are... A, 16 teams up from 12. B, 75% of teams must be based in a city in cities with populations of more than 2 million people, up from 1 million. And C, all teams must meet a minimum 15,000 seat capacity requirement for the league to be Division One. Now, this seems these may seem like arbitrary changes, but uh, I think that there is an argument to be made on on the part of U.S. Soccer that hey, we want the best league possible here why wouldn't we raise those standards in order to make sure our division one which when people look at the united states and say what's their top division oh here it is these are certainly standards that reflect on a on a strong league i mean there's not there's no way other way to say that now again is this a monop does it create a monopoly for mls does it restrain nasl's trade i'm no lawyer but I've been around sports long enough as a uh, as a viewer and now as a as an analyst slash guy who talks about them to understand a bit about the antitrust elements. The quote by the uh, attorney Jeffrey Kessler, an antitrust and sports attorney representing NASL, doubling the population criteria now is an anti-competitive bait and switch with the purpose of entrenching MLS's monopoly position at the very time when the NASL is threatening to become a significant competitor. I'm not so sure about the significant competitor element. Certainly, NASL wants to get to that level. 
I don't know without a television contract, a contract of national prominence. And and again, they they this is chicken and egg for NASL. They'll argue that it's more difficult for them to get in place something like a national television deal because they can't go for Division One status because U.S. Soccer is restraining trade by by setting up a situation where, um, where the the MLS standards are the standards. All right, let's go to. Kevin in North Carolina, what's up? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, so, I'm good. I'm a statistician by trade, and I got an academic paper recently uh, looking at the cliche of the red card. Basically, is it harder to fight against a 10-man team? And since I think most of the audience might not be reading statistical academic papers all that often, I thought I'd share just a little bit of that all with right, let, you let me, in the audience. Let me just let me just set the stage here. What you're saying is that there's a cliche, there's a, there's some there's some wisdom in soccer that says when a when a team goes to town down to ten men, what does that mean? They bunker in and they, it's harder to break them down. Right, exactly. That that team you know gets compact, and a lot of times it can be harder to fight against. And okay, there have been studies done. Uh, so just to give credit where credit is due, this is a significant magazine. And the author is Adam Greenberg. Uh, and he used uh, regression analysis and basic t-test to kind of look at these things. Um, and, you know, so the tr- what he said is the traditional idea is that, you know, when a player is sent off, people will, you know, be compact and, uh, you know, fight again. Basically just be harder to get through, get space, that kind of thing. Well, he looked at three, I think, three seasons of Premier League Masters uh, matches using Sky Sports data, data, and what he found was that in fact I, that cliche isn't true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was interesting about it is that when, or what at least I found really interesting, is that when two red cards were given, what he found was that this effect on the home team was a lot more significant than it was to the away team. Essentially, that if a home team got a red card that the effect that it had on them was much more significant in terms of their points per game, like their goals, as well as their total point counts in general. Mm -hmm. So, and the idea was that, and he theorized that essentially a home team kind of has a morale or uh, an advantage in terms of spirit kind of already going into the game. So when a red, a red card given to that team, the effect and confidence, like there's more room for that red card to alter the confidence right. of the squad. Right, right. They have essentially. Yeah, I see what you're saying. There, the, yeah, there's certainly a, a bigger a bigger switch in their attitude than there would be for an away team who comes into that game thinking, "Hey, a point would be good for us." I'm with you on that, Kevin. Right, exactly. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. you said it's in Significant Magazine. Uh, yeah, it's called Significance. Magazine? Oh, significance, um, okay. And it's a statistical magazine okay. given to members of the American Statistical Association. All right, cool. Well, so, uh, maybe maybe we can find, uh, maybe people out there who are interested in statistics and on this can find it. I appreciate I appreciate that, man. Thanks for the call. Yeah, have right. a good one. There goes Kevin in uh, North Carolina. I'm not a stats guy, okay? I'm, I'm trying real hard, but I'm not a stats guy. Al in Missouri, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Jason. How you doing? I'm doing well, sir. What's on your mind? Well, about this NASL um, lawsuit 
Sports U.S. Soccer Federation. I don't see how they're going to win this battle, especially when you only have 14 teams, and then you don't have any um, expansion teams coming up on the West Coast that we've heard of, you know, in the last couple months and everything else. Plus, you're going to lose uh, Minnesota United. That's going to move up to um to um Major League Soccer. So, I mean, I don't know how they're going to win this. I don't know how they're going to justify to the sports that, well, you know, we have, we, we don't like, we don't like the rules, but we're doing something and everything else. There should be 16 teams, but, you know, again, like I said, they don't have any Western, um, expansion teams out there. Yeah. You know, uh, the, right. They need to do that per the, the D2, I mean, we're not talking about the D1 guidelines. We're talking about NASL meeting the Division 2 guidelines. Uh, you know, all of this is, Tied up in, in, in the USL MLS partnership. USL is going for second division status uh, eventually. NESL is um, a league with a very different mindset than MLS in terms of how they're doing their business. I think that they see not only going for division one status, but sort of setting themselves up as an alternative to MLS as a major selling point for their league. Uh, this is. I, I, I'm troubled by this only because I don't like you when American soccer fights with American soccer, but. If you believe that they have a case, then it really hinges on whether or not U.S. soccer has the ability to make these changes without any, you know, without any oversight, without any question by the courts, if they have the authority to do so, so under the law. And there are laws apply, uh, that apply. I'm not an expert again, but there are laws that apply. You know, one of the things NASL says and has an issue with is the fact that MLS has a greater, no, a greater representation on the U.S. soccer board than other professional leagues, which then entrenches MLS interests. Now, MLS and U.S. soccer are tied at the hip. There's no arguing about that. They may be scratching each other's back on most occasions. Is that enough to give NASL legitimate grounds for a complaint here? I don't know. don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll see about that. All right, man. I appreciate the call. Al, you got anything else? I don't know. That's right. about it. There you go. Six four six eight three two thirty nine zero nine. What what is the end game here? I mean, I don't. I want NASL to succeed, but I'll admit that when I say I want them to succeed, I want them to succeed to the point where they are such a strong second division, and their teams are so are doing so well that they're in the black. First of all, let's make sure that teams aren't going anywhere. I mean, it's okay to lose money to a point. But you can't dump a bunch of money down a drain and keep the league going. So I want them to be financially solid. Then, when we get to the point, and I don't know how long the timeline is, and I know we're all impatient people, but then, when we get to the point where we can say, hey, look, here's a 12, 14, 16-team league. All of these teams are doing well enough. They've got... Fan bases that are growing, uh, you know, I don't know what the what the number is in terms of sta- uh, attendance. I don't know how arbitrary we should be with those things. Then we say, okay, now MLS, you can't ignore this anymore. Now U.S. Soccer, you can't ignore this anymore. Hey, let's consider some sort of integration. I don't know what form that would take. And we know that MLS owners are very hes- would be very hesitant to go the promotion relegation route. From a practical standpoint, if I'm looking into my crystal ball, I don't think ProRail ever happens. That's that's because of the landscape of American soccer as it exists. That doesn't mean I don't want it to happen. 
Of course, I want it to happen. It would be fun. But that, and it would also mean that we have 30, 36, 40 teams in this country who can move between divisions without any trouble. That would be a, an amazing thing for American soccer. Hopefully, 40 academies pumping out talent. That would be an amazing thing for me. Of course, I want that. But when you look at the way things have gone, and again, I don't know the NASL stepping up, crying foul over this stuff, is grounds, I mean, is, is positive in any way, shape, or form. If you believe that MLS and, and U.S. soccer are too closely tied, that they're con- uh, colluding to restrain uh, NASL's trade, then there, it may be just be a black and white right or wrong issue for you. But we should also consider the ramifications for American soccer. And I do, I think it is unfortunate that we are this deep into the MLS era, 20 years in, that really there's no turning back here. We can advocate for the breakup of single entity. We should absolutely do that. We should advocate for the league to spend money um, in, a, in a more aggressive manner to, pr- to improve the league over the timeline that they say they want to improve it. We should uh, talk about the, uh, the, the agreements that the players have signed in terms of collective bargaining and whether or not the, the owners have had their way for far too long. All of those things are on the table. MLS and its structure is on the table. But, that, but they are the established teams. They are the teams that have built stadiums that seat 20,000 people. They are the teams that have sold tickets and signed players and gotten a TV contract. So when we look at the landscape of American soccer now, when you see the NASL lobbing bombs over, and, and again, questioning whether or not they even have a legitimate grounds to do so, that can only end in some sort of disaster, whether that's MLS gets hit by the court and now we have a, a serious problem with uh, two competing leagues essentially um, cannibalizing each other or the NASL ends up going away if they lose. That's that's not good. Uh, John on Twitter, I think the end game is forcing U.S. soccer and MLS to turn over any collusion documentation regarding the D1 status. Okay, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, you subpoena email records over talks about changing the status if that's some. But again, these things are intertwined. Sunil Gulati has dual roles. Uh, Don Garber's on the board. All these people, so you can argue that they are working in their different capacities, even if there is a, an obvious collusion going on. Dan in New York, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Jason? Going well. It's getting interesting around here. What's up? Hey, man, um, just on my day off, I was listening to the show, and I'm glad you're covering it. Look, as far as the whole NASL, USL, MLS stuff, look, the stuff that MLS is doing is just not right. And I get it. Everybody by, by, by what standard? Right. Yeah, Dan, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you, but by what standard is it just not right? It is, well, the new standards that they want to implement, right? Okay, like but... Ibar in Spain wouldn't be able to make the MLS, you know, and excuse me for saying the MLS, but there's other reports out there that already show, like, a lot of clubs in England wouldn't be able to meet these standards. And I know we're not England, but it's about time that we just stopped, like, the madness with MLS just running U.S. soccer. And I get it. They earned it. You know, they built the stadiums. I'm not saying to them not to keep keep first division status, you know. But what I'm saying is these, these side deals, like, when, when we just lost a board member on the U.S. or on U.S. soccer and then a USL owner automatically gets that board member seat, like NASL not having any representation on the U.S. soccer board. And now these new measures, 
come on, it's just, it's so obvious that they're trying to keep NFL down. It's it's not even, it's not even like you can put it as a split joke. It's, it's just clearly obvious. You know, USL is definitely well, not I, interested in ever okay, having person in wh- stats, wh- right? Wh- wh- so they're not affecting yourself. It's okay. directly at NFL. I'm listening, Jason. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I see where you're going with this. And again, we, we, we live in a country that, uh, uh, you know, has abhorred trusts and, and monopolies for a long time. And um, clearly, sports has always operated outside of that realm. I mean, you've seen, you've seen upstart leagues try to go after the big boy before. And generally speaking, what happens? The, that league operates for a little while, it makes a dent, and then the bigger league says, okay, well, you know, you guys are really freaking annoying. We'll take on some of your teams and, and swallow you whole. <laughs> is, that, is that really what NESL wants to do? I mean, I, I think that, that that is a more likely end game than a coexisting two division one. I mean, I think that's a mess. And I'm not saying I'm Jason, rooting. I'm, with you, I'm not rooting for MLS. I'm, with you, I'm not. But, but, it, but, a, I'm but a world. Brother. A world where MLS and NASL are both Division One is a messed up world. It's a me- I don't even know how that works, man. No, it, and it doesn't, and it doesn't, and I'm with you. You know, I'm not trying, I don't have an answer for how to make these leagues work. I'm just saying that this, like, it's, it's to the point where it's clear that they're trying to, they're, they're trying to get NASL out of the picture. Okay, but, but it comes down to, you know, it, it comes down to Dan. Well, okay, okay, but for, well, there, there's a couple of things here. One, NESL doesn't have to sit there and decide that they want to be, and, and by the way, there are reports and people I know who have sources within the NESL community say that not everybody's on board with this aggressive approach, but even if the, the ones that are, there's nothing that says NESL has to be so, I mean, it, it seems as though they're putting all of their eggs in this basket that is, unless we sell ourselves as top division, unless we make an effort to go after that, unless we use all of this rhetoric that comes out of the mouths of people like Bill Peterson and Seamus O'Brien, we can't compete just to be... Look, I, I, I know ML, part of... Part yeah, and of, I get it. From what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, why can't they just take the USL model and kind of like be happy well, with I don't, it? Well, I don't, I don't even know if it has... I don't, and I get it. I don't know if it has to be USL. I mean, I don't, it doesn't have to be... You know, you don't have to go regional. But, but you can try to go... USL is content, though. Right, they, they're not trying. They're not trying to make any noise. They're yeah. cool. Hey, MLS, yeah. you got it. You're the top dog. But what I'm saying is, like, MLS is clear. Like the action that they're taking is trying to just undermine everything NFL is doing. And and if we're going to be cool with that, then you know what? Then U.S. Soccer, what they're doing is spot on. Because if it's going to be clear that there's there's not going to be kind of like no sporting okay. merit yeah. to what Look, the, to what MLS is doing. The question- if it's going to be clear that you need to have two million people, yeah. and these are the standards. Everybody sees they're catered to MLS, what they're doing. Sure. You can't get a team. For example, the, the, the first division status, that's what you just brought up. Why do they need it? Right away. If Tampa Bay wants to go to first division status, if, if, they, were, if, they, if they showed that they could, they'd have 25000 in that stadium next year. Same thing for a lot of those strikers. If they yeah. could move up, yeah. they'd get more people. It's clear that once you say that a team is going to be moved up to MLS, you see what happens with, you see what happens with the crowd. It's it's clear. So even if I yeah, but, but, but okay, but Dan, like but Dan, saying, right? is that but is it, it, is, is, is that about the D one status, or is it about is that the brand that MLS has built? I mean, is that the, the MLS has has spent twenty years, and obviously in the last you know eight or nine, put a lot of money into the number of play uh, the, the type of players that they're bringing over, and again, working very diligently to get these stadiums built. Don't you think that it's you know it it. I think NASL more than but anything else. They deserve else. to be first division, brother. I'm telling you that. That I'm not arguing. 
But okay. the fact that they, they're already there. They're not getting moved out of first division. We, we know that. They've got the stadiums. They've got the players. They've got the training facilities. Anybody who's worth their dime in yeah. soccer knows that MLS isn't moving because they, have the infra- they are first division. You know, that, that's not even a competition. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is the, those standards that they're going to put in place to make it harder to get to first division. We know there's no pro-rail, right? Yeah. So they have to go outside of the pro-rail yeah. route yeah, because that, they that, have to try to find a way to first that's division. Clearly, look, For those standards... Yeah. There's no way they can ever get there, Jason. Yeah, that's the, look. That's where that's that that's essentially the entire argument. Because there's no promotion <laughs> and relegation, NASL is essentially saying, "How can you possibly sit there and keep us uh, from challenging for first division status if our clubs don't have the opportunity to move up?" I, I get it. I do. I get it. And, and and you're right. You're absolutely right to say that this one is 100 percent a bald faced move on the part of U.S. soccer to entrench MLS. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The The ultimate question for American soccer fans, and I don't like this whole your, your team NASL, your team MLS thing. I'm not a big fan of that, but you, you ultimately... Oh, that stuff is nuts, man. No, the that ultimately... That stuff is nuts. The question is... Because whether, me, on, as a soccer fan, yeah. I can't tell my kids... Like, I'm from New York, right? I can't tell my kids, like, hey, man, you can't watch the Cosmos because you're MLS guy, or you can't watch the Red Bulls because you're NA. It makes no sense. Like, I was at the Derby, right, when New York City FC played, uh, played New York Cosmos. I met a guy from Argentina, man. Like, and all he did was, like, hey, this is awesome. Dude, he, and I had to tell him, hey, brother, no, like, like this team plays with these kind of teams, and this team plays over here. And it didn't make any sense to him. Like, I, I, I just, I just want to be able to see good soccer. Yeah. You know? And, again, yeah. for, for us to be able, for, for, like, those teams, like, like Tampa Bay, what they're doing down there, man, it's amazing, mm-hmm. you know. Don't get me started about the stuff they did with the coach, but right. what they're doing down there is amazing. Yeah. For that team, if they went NASL this season, to not be able to move up, or for them not to be able to say like we operate at a Division One standard because they need like a fifteen thousand. It's it's just wow. let the team let the let the team well, play soccer, man. Yeah, okay. I appreciate the call, Dan. I, like, there's 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 so many moving parts to this. Again, the the basis, the essence of this whole thing is whether or not because of the lack of an integrated pyramid, MLS and U.S. Soccer are colluding to keep down NASL. It, 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 either you, you the, the argument is you can either have it one way or the other. Either you have integration and these teams can move between divisions, okay, and everybody's happy, and it's great that you're you know in, that you've got a, t- a top division and a second division, or you will, you will let everybody compete for first division status. That's essentially what they're saying. Now, again, the, 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 the standards seem arbitrary, but at the same time, they also make for a first-class league in this country, and I don't know that I have a problem with that. The end-all, be-all of this conversation is whether you believe that the ends justify the means, the ends being getting, making sure that MLS is the horse you bet on for the foreseeable future, whether or not it's important for American soccer to have one clear and... Un, uh, untouched first division, meaning they are absolutely the first division. There will be no question about that. Nobody's going to be challenging them. That way they can go about the business of building up American soccer. I do think, and I, I, I'm not making a judgment there. I, I think there, there, there are really solid arguments on both sides of this thing. Really, there are solid arguments on both sides. One of them is a soccer argument. What's best for American soccer? My belief is 20 years in, it's for MLS to be the Division One without any question. Hey, NASL, it's cool if you slot in Division Two if you if you meet those standards, et cetera, et cetera. And the other side of it is the free trade argument, the legal argument, and they may have a point there. 
Mike on Twitter says, even if the standards don't change, NASL wouldn't be able to meet D1 status. The whole argument is moot. It's not moot. Even if NASL has trouble getting to standards, the, the argument is not about where NASL is right now. It's about the ability for, MLS, for NASL to go eventually challenge for Division One. And what they're saying is, and this is the chicken and the egg problem for a lot of things that happen in American soccer, what they're saying is, without the ability to go for D1, and without the opportunity to, to sell ourselves as potentially D1, that limits our ability to make money and grow our league. So without the without the opportunity, we can't meet. We you know we can't grow. We can't. We don't have free trade. We don't have the freedom in the market to make ourselves an alternative to MLS on a D1 level. Essentially, they're saying that that standard, uh, that that label of D1 is everything in soccer. And Dan made a point about obviously the the number of fans who show up. And in an NASL game versus an MLS game, when a team moves up, some of that is, is maybe built on the D1 thing, but it's mostly built on MLS and its brand. And they've created that brand. So, uh, you know, this is, uh, this, is mu- this is really muddy waters. It's, it's, again, reopening old wounds that American soccer has gone. They've gone we've gone through so many of these fights. You know, they're, they're, not too long ago, we went through the USL-NASL split. If you're fairly new to, to soccer, maybe you haven't paid, to, paid attention to low divisions, that thing was a debacle. It led to the creation of NASL, uh, to some teams staying in the USL. It brought us to this point with a USL that is partnered with MLS and working clearly on a secondary level with no ambition to go beyond D2 if they can get there. And NASL, who had owners with bigger dreams, who wanted to go and really make a run at things, really make a run at MLS, and prove themselves an alternative to MLS. And there's a couple of things that really bug me about this situation. It's the infighting in American soccer, which has never ended well. And it's the ridiculous notion that we have, we, we have to pick a philosophy. These are sports teams. We're supposed to go root for our players to win games and score goals. I shouldn't have to argue with people on the internet about the philosophy of how these leagues run. That's beyond the pale of normal sports fandom. It's ridiculous. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Soccer Morning. Fantastic discussion. Thanks for the calls, guys. Al, Dan, everybody who called in, uh, our stats guy. Uh, We are going to be back tomorrow with another big episode. I imagine we'll be continuing to talk about this topic. We'll see what the transfer deadline day delivers in England. Thanks to Eric Gomez for his appearance on this show as well. It's good to talk to Eric about Mexican soccer. Go to backheel.com slash store, as I mentioned before. What else? Soccer Morning on YouTube. Do that, too. The American Soccer Morning Minute update thing is rolling on. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Later. Did my invitations disappear? What up on my heart?